adorable. Yeah, I know. Hello, nerds, friends, librarians, and all you ilk. Welcome to episode 23 of the SS Librarianship podcast. We have an old-fashioned episode. That old fashioned today. sounds classy. Yeah, it's just the two of us. Uh, we're chatting in one of our kind of nice, long, rambling library related discussions that we're framing as a where do we put this this week? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this week is all about social media in libraries. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've both had that on the brain in various ways lately because of the work we've been doing, mm-hmm. and uh, it made a lot of sense to talk about it. Um, yeah. So we'll talk a bit about social media as something that gets used by libraries and also maybe social media as something that's part of modern digital literacy that libraries kind of have a responsibility to help educate people about as well. Yeah, we also lay down maybe a few of the kind of best practices that we've seen in all of the social media and libraries that we've encountered Mm -hmm. and um, talk about maybe some not so hot examples (laughs) of how (laughs) libraries are using social media to be really creepy. (laughs) <laughs> and as usual, we welcome your examples on Twitter or Tumblr, however you want to get in touch with us. So I guess without further ado, uh, let's get this one started. I'm Ali Sullivan and want beer, like beer, beer good, foamy. And I'm Sam Mills and um, he's sick. My best friend's sister's boyfriend's brother's girlfriend heard from this guy who knows this kid who saw Ferris pass out at 31 Flavors last night. I guess it's pretty serious. It'd have to be. So it's reading break. Yeah. Theoretically, we should be doing all kinds of non-school related things. And not lying on the couch watching season upon season of Grey's Anatomy. But it is reading Alas, that is where I'm at right now. (laughs) How many seasons have you watched in what sort of time frame? I don't. <laughs> when you when you don't want to volunteer that information, I don't want to volunteer you know. that information. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, well, when did we first start talking about it? Was it like three weeks ago? Mm, something like that. That I've gone through like seven seasons in three weeks. <laughs> Nicely done. God damn it's you, Netflix. Netflix was invented. It's like that that ten seconds between episodes, and then uh, after you've watched after you've watched three in a row, it has that judgmental pop up that comes up. It's like. Are you still watching this? Seriously? Yes, Netflix. I am still watching that. What? You don't get that? No. Yeah. If and maybe it's just the Xbox app, but like if you watch more than two episodes in a row, that kind after of the judgmentalness sounds like an Xbox type thing. <laughs> Microsoft <laughs> wagging its finger at you, wanting you to go use its business <laughs> applications instead. Probably. <laughs> um, but have you been getting up to anything fun? Um, I have been playing a little more of the fantastic uh, Star Trek Voyager Elite Force <laughs> set phasers to frag. Oh. It's, it's, it's pretty great. You're having fun with that? It's super fun. I mean, yeah. honestly, you know, I don't have much frame of reference. <laughs> uh, I believe John's words to me several weeks ago were, it's adorable listening to me discover video games. <laughs> <laughs> it's like watching a baby giraffe stand up for the first time. 
Uh, but it's been really, really fun. I mean, I'm, I was such a big Voyager fan when I was a kid. Yeah. That like wandering through those corridors and stuff is super fun. And I'm playing on easy. So, you know, I don't have to worry too much about targeting properly at the aliens I want to shoot or yeah. anything. John always laughs at me when I when I start a game. If I play it on the easiest setting, he's like, Alice, there's not even a challenge to that. Why is that fun? I'm like, why is dying fun? It's a dying challenge for me. Games is not fun. I can. I took me forever to get the hang of the whole like you rotate with one joystick mm -hmm. and move with the other one. Oh yeah. So like I'm still mastering that. So playing on easy <laughs> is perfect for me. It takes, but, a, it uh, takes a little bit of, of getting used to. Yeah. yeah. But it's great. It's kind of great because it really is a very Star Trek style game. Like as much as it is a first person shooter mm -hmm. um, and you're part of the hazard team, which is sort of the like black ops team within Voyager security, which was a real thing on the show. Although they didn't go into it too much. Mm -hmm. Um, it really has a very Star Trek kind of twist to it. Like I just finished beating the sort of first major level where you're in this alien spaceship and you have various tasks you have to do to go sort of shut down certain generators or rescue your friends or, you know, make things so that you can transport back to your ship or whatever. Because mm -hmm. um, you're on kind of a recon mission because the ship's been stranded in this in-between space and the ship is there mm -hmm. as well. Uh, and the whole time you think you're killing these like weird alien butterfly monster things that keep coming out of vortexes and attacking you mm -hmm. and, and then at the very end shut up <laughs> and then at the very end of the level when you and your commander finally confront the like little hive mind guy of the butterfly creatures it turns out that it was all a misunderstanding Okay, and that we're all stuck here together, and we should work together. Just and then we're alert. like, we're sorry that we killed all your butterfly creature people. And then the head butterfly creature person is like, No, don't worry about it. You weren't killing them. They were just being re like retransported to their stasis pods. And okay. all the all the people on your team that you think you've lost in all of the firefighting mm -hmm. throughout the level have actually also just been transported to the stasis pods. So oh. you get them all back. So well, it's very convenient. like, yeah. <laughs> not, not not the kind of mass slaughter you would expect from a first person shooter because it still has to be a Star Trek game, right? Yeah. So that was great. But uh no, it's it's super fun and it's got it's got all these neat little touches in it. Like if anyone follows us on Tumblr when I first started playing, I was blogging my deaths because <laughs> when you die, it'll give you these little quippy things like, you know, Commander Tuvok will be very disappointed or like if you get killed by the Borg it's all like resistance was truly futile or whatever <laughs> and, um, and it also turns out that there are more ways to die than just getting killed in like firefights in this game they've really mm. designed these little areas so um I was gearing up for the next mission, which, in, which involves moving through the ship to the like hazard ops area and going into the weapons locker and getting your new weapons. Because right? mm -hmm. there's like nine weapons in the game and I've only unlocked five of them or whatever. <laughs> and so I got a grenade launcher. <laughs> so I went into the little holodeck off the weapons locker to practice with the grenade launcher. And I'm fine and I know how to use it and the different settings on it and whatever. And then I go back into the weapons locker area where there's an officer who, you know, is in charge of that area. And I thought that I was pushing the button to like take another weapon off the wall or whatever but I accidentally shot a grenade in the <laughs> and, it, and it went off and I thought well nothing's going to happen right because in a lot of games you're sort of especially really Protected, primitive games yeah. you just kind of can't do certain things mm -hmm. but uh, no there's totally friendly fire in this game and so the grenade blows up and the screen goes black and then it fades back up and you're in the brig and <laughs> Chell 
And Chell is outside the brig. And he's all like, oh, I've never been in the brig before. This doesn't look very comfortable. Oh, well, have fun. Bye. And he leaves. And you're just sitting in there and that's the end. Like you basically die. You fail that part yeah. of the game and you have to go back to your last load point because oh, you got funny. arrested and thrown in the brig. Because you accidentally dropped a grenade. There's no like whoopsie setting. Nope. <laughs> well, that's unfortunate. Tuvok runs a tight team. He'd have to. <laughs> it's, it's a lot of fun. I'm very much enjoying it. It's exactly my speed, like PS2. Yep. Yeah. Anything more complicated than that controller, I don't think I could handle. <laughs> you would have loved the Dreamcast. Probably. That was a monster of a controller. We never had anything in our house until my brother got old enough to use his spending money to buy himself an N64. Okay. Before that, like when we were little kids, I would play Super Nintendo like at my friends' houses or my dad would let us rent a Super Nintendo every mm-hmm. once in a while. But we oh, never, when I was sick, yeah. yeah, I was allowed to rent things. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I'm discovering it now as a 30-year-old <laughs> adult. It's pretty fun. <laughs> what about you? Well, I, I guess um, one thing we did do is we did catch up on Sherlock. So mm. I'm now all all caught up on Sherlock. And ambivalence is probably the main emotion, hmm. I would feel. That's kind of um, how I feel towards even watching yeah. season three. I haven't even got around <laughs> to watching it yet. Um, the first episode is I really I really liked because it was the one where, like, you know, Sherlock comes back and he's just such a massive douchebag about like coming back and wanting to surprise everyone and wanting everyone to be happy to see him but not not realizing. getting the whole we're angry because we thought you were dead and we yeah for you and whatever thing yeah exactly yeah. and so which i suppose kind of does fit in with the way that he's depicted as almost having asperger's or something right like, yeah not being quite there in terms of reading other people's emotional responses exactly and so like i, I liked the first one the second one was kind of kind of brilliant but also a little bit weird like it's it's told very much as kind of a, a pastiche sort of story mm-hmm. and it like flips back and forth because it's sort of in this context of um it's it's john john watson's wedding and um there's sherlock is giving a toast but during the toast he also has to solve a murder so he's kind of like talking through the murder during his toast Oh, okay. And it's flipping back and forth. I think I may have seen some gift sets of that. Oh, I'm sure you have. <laughs> but, you know, and it was, it was a really interesting episode. It was really clever. It was, um, you know, I love, I was, uh, a few weeks ago, I talked about a book that I really enjoyed because I didn't see the plot twists coming. Mm. And Sherlock can kind of get that way for me sometimes. If The, the, the writing in that episode was quite good in, it, in that it was like, well, I couldn't, I didn't see the ending in sight. You know, that's why I can't. Or why I don't read a lot of mystery novels, because I can usually call it. And if I do, then it's like simultaneously, I'm proud of myself for being like, ha ha, I'm so <laughs> smart. But at the same time, I'm like, well, that was crap, because yeah. I saw it coming. I yeah. was, that well, was you, not I enjoyable. I mean, you want to think, I don't know, maybe this is a, a competitive attitude that only us grade grubbers from way back <laughs> uh, subscribe to. But you want you want the writers of the stuff that you're watching or reading or whatever to be smarter than you. Yeah. Right? I would really, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, I think that's why the third episode left me so cold because I did call it really early. Like, I'm not going to spoiler it. I, I don't think we're quite beyond the uh, beyond the the spoiler moratorium yet on that mm. one. So I won't say what it was, but I, I yeah, I called it pretty early. Hmm. The, the kind of the big reveal, you know, and I was like, ugh, that was really unsatisfying. Like, yeah. And and also just the way that Sherlock like kind of gets gets 
he quite literally gets away with murder at the end of the episode. So it's kind of... Uh, was that a spoiler? That too spoilery? <laughs> I, don't I don't know. know. I mean, as someone who hasn't seen season three because I have no context for that, mm-hmm. it's probably still going to take me by surprise, but we'll yeah. see. <laughs> I don't Maybe know. Maybe we should put a put a mini warning at the beginning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> If you're super spoiler you're super sensitive. super spoiler sensitive about Sherlock, yeah. do not listen to Mind Grapes this week. But... <laughs> um, <laughs> But I mean, it was it was good. It was enjoyable. The first two were especially kind of cool. But it sounds like they were well put together. Like yeah. I remember seeing the flurry of people talking about the whole Anderson thing in the first episode and mm-hmm. how it was sort of representing the fan perspective. And oh, those, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That that was kind of fun and clever and cute. And they did some they did some cute stuff with like a conspiracy theory group trying to figure out how Sherlock did it. You know? <laughs> um, so it was it was pretty interesting. And um yeah, but I think I think my I, as much as I like to say it wasn't colored by the you know recent Stephen Moffat commentary, yeah. I couldn't I couldn't get over it a little bit. That was my initial reason for not really being super interested yeah. in season three, and then I just the disinterest continued. But mm-hmm. yeah, it is it's so funny because I'm always on here talking about Orson Scott Card and how I I can somehow separate that in my mind and mm-hmm. still enjoy these books. Yeah, maybe it's because I enjoyed them before I knew. Maybe, but. With Moffat, it's much harder to do. Yeah, and it, know and, and how and much of a jerk he is. I wouldn't. I I maybe wouldn't have watched him at all, except for that Mark Gaddis, who's on the show, is mm-hmm. actually one of the main writers, and he writes mystery novels like as a as a project. Yeah, and he is a really cool guy. He's a really funny guy. Like he's yeah. really hilarious. He's um, Mycroft on mm-hmm. on the on the show. Yeah. So he's one of the main writers, and he and he and Stephen Moffat pretty much have equal equal holding. Yeah. What's mind boggling to me is that they're friends with each other. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but well, I'm but sure I mean, there's a side of Moffat that we don't see when he's shooting his mouth off in the You public. know, and everybody's got that douchebag friend who's yeah. like, well, he's a douchebag, but he's our douchebag. Yeah. You know? well, so maybe it's one of those And as community fans, I suppose we should give it a little <laughs> bit of leeway because Dan Harmon is our douchebag. That's true. <laughs> yeah. Although we were trying to explain the, the, the latest season of Community to some people, and I was just like, yeah, just the first couple episodes, it's still just, just yeah. tastes He was pulling on the reins of, yeah. if, we're gonna, if we're gonna change gears from Sherlock and talk about community <laughs> which we haven't done yet this season have we um he was pulling on the reins a little hard yeah in those first few episodes you could tell he was mm-hmm. really trying to get it back under his control and then it relaxed a bit and it got got a little bit got better. really good yeah mm-hmm. that Nathan Fillion episode uh, was yeah. a little bit of a waste but <laughs> in general but it also had Kumail Nanjiani who's who's really really funny uh, yeah I mean, he's a funny comedian yeah have you been getting up to anything else between uh, between your dramatic well, <laughs> Star Trek another thing friendly we... <laughs> fire between the when you when you're not killing the poor weapons locker guy? Yeah, I, I know. I I ended up not murdering any of the butterfly creatures that were trying to kill me, and then I murdered my crewmate in the weapons locker. I'm a terrible terrible player. Um, another thing, I guess that really due to spoiler moratoriums and recentness i won't go into any detail about it and i'm not even done watching it yet but house of cards is back yep um and just totally riveting yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh emily who some of you might remember from the halloween episode my roommate and i that's it's our it's our roomy show we watched the whole first <laughs> season together last mm-hmm. year so uh, we waited till tuesday this week when we both had some time even yep. though it came out last friday and uh, at least one of the librarians I work with apparently got up at 6 a.m. last Friday <laughs> to watch some of it before she came to work. That's that dedication. dedication. <laughs> yeah. But uh, so we started it on Tuesday night. We're about six episodes in. I think it's mm-hmm. a 13 episode season, six or seven episodes in. And yeah, like 
just as good. Not a disappointment. Better, I would Better. say. Wow. Um, they made a couple of really interesting course corrections that mm-hmm. we were not expecting mm-hmm. <laughs> and characters coming and going that we were not necessarily expecting. Um, and the acting is just amazing. And the the show itself is so beautifully put together. I mean, we're a little spoiled now because I got a Blu-ray player for Christmas. <laughs> um, and so between the HD TV and the Blu-ray player, and Netflix now having this super HD option for some of the new shows, mm-hmm. the cinematography is just like, it just pops. I mean, oh, it's a gorgeous great. show anyway, but seeing it that crisp is really, it's definitely worth watching in HD if you can. Yeah. Because <laughs> um, it really does bring a lot to it. It's really beautifully filmed. Mm-hmm. And it's just, they take good advantage of the of the form. I mean, they don't exactly... It's still written and filmed as basically, you know, an hour episode each week. Like it could work like that. Mm -hmm. But watching them all close together, you really get to follow the more intricate strands of the plot. And the, I mean, we're both, Emily and I, pretty, you know, obsessive TV watchers in our own ways and pretty good at following the details of the plot. And we basically sit in silence and watch it and we still occasionally have to ask each other what just happened why did frank do that like there's just so many strands going on oh okay and i don't know it's yeah it's just really really fascinating the the writer um bo willimon who created it for for netflix i was gonna say for american tv but really Mm -hmm. it's not it's for netflix um was interviewed and I'll throw a link to this in the show notes this week because um, I can't remember exactly where the interview was. It might have been Huff Post or something, mm-hmm. but they really let him go. <laughs> like yeah. usually interviews are you know quite short, especially with big time writers who have lots else to do. But he really got into his theories about television and film. And we talked about this before in the show. I feel like I've told several people about this recently. I don't but, think so. No. Um, he really sees TV and film as as merging as mediums Mm -hmm. because of things like Netflix and streaming technologies and the different ways that people access and view these things and Mm -hmm. the way that you can sit down and watch season two of House of Cards as a 13 hour movie if you want. Yeah. Or you can watch it, you know, spread over months or somewhere in between those two things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he was, of course, citing the new season of Arrested Development as an example of taking advantage of that forum and sort of creating this weird um, mismatched kind of. pastiche yeah. map that you can watch in any order and it will change meaning based on the order and uh, and he was talking about they still sort of have to structure House of Cards episodes as you know 48 minute weekly TV shows because they want that option for syndication and mm-hmm. in the beginning when they were designing the show they hadn't been picked up by Netflix yet so they weren't sure where they were going to be Yeah, but he's had the freedom because of the form to to tell different sized stories mm-hmm. than you would ordinarily have to tell if you were tailoring yourself to commercial breaks and network structures and whatever. So he was citing one of the episodes. It was the one um, that was set around Father's Day last season. Mm-hmm. And there's <clears throat> sort of a 40 minute story about like Peter Russo and his decision to, you know, run um, for, I think it's Congress. And then that's about 40 minutes. And then there's this eight minute scene at the end between Frank and Zoe, who are characters that people who watch the show will recognize. And that's entirely about their relationship and about her relationship with her father and whatever. And they're in the same episode, so you don't really think about it. Mm -hmm. But once he said it, I thought back to it and went, yeah, that was a 40 minute episode and an eight minute episode. 
Mm-hmm. They were just put together because the episodes need to be 48 minutes long. Yeah. And so he was really talking about he wants to start pushing that form. He wants to do something like create a thing that's just eight hours long. Yeah. And you can choose as a viewer how you're going to consume that and your experience of it will change based on the choice that you make. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's just fascinating. And he's a great writer and the writers he's hired are, yeah. are fantastic. Well, it's really interesting to talk about that kind of stuff in in the nature of changing media and, and also things like um, there's a lot of uh, you know online extra content nowadays yeah. too. So like for Sherlock, before, before this season came out, they had a couple of kind of mini episodes hmm. that they that they put out first. And they're they're interesting and it's... I think it's really it's really kind of cool to to take these kinds of perspectives, and I think it would be interesting to uh, kind of have stuff like that. I, there's mm-hmm. this um, web series I can't remember exactly what it's called, um, but it's about people who do crime scene cleanup, hmm. and I'll, I'll I'll find it. And I'll put it in the show notes too. Um, and it's it's an interactive watching experience. So it's a web series, but there's things like. Uh, cell phones and stuff so like if a, if a cell phone rings with a text message you can kind of like there's like a little pop-up button and if you want to hit the button and read what the text message said you can hmm. and like it'll pause the action and you can go to but it's it's not like a choose your own adventure in that like it'll stop the action until you've made a decision it'll um it just lets you do it at your own pace exactly and absorb that extra layer yeah, yeah so like so like you can listen to a voicemail or you can <laughs> you know do this kind of stuff and it's it's really interesting and it's it's funny too because it has um uh marilyn raskjub is in it who's uh really she's one of those actors who it's she's hilarious oh, i can picture her now yeah yeah you, once you see her face she was on 24 like, oh. right I couldn't tell you that. Mm, I might be wrong, but yeah. But um, she's really, really funny, and uh, yeah, it's just it's a great show. It's a great little web series. Mm. Um, and it's interesting that you mentioned the text messages because even um, House of Cards is now doing a thing that I mean Sherlock actually did first, I think, mm. which is show the text messages on the screen, yeah, I love right? That. And that's such this is extra layer that. It draws on the way we live our lives, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we live our lives in this sort of semi-augmented reality because we have these devices with us all the time. Yeah. And it adds another layer to the storytelling that makes it feel quite real. I mean, yeah. I think there's a temptation on the part of some writers to simplify their worlds by kind of cutting out the technology, whether they do mm-hmm. that in a really dramatic way, like something like Revolution or Lost, or in just a just ignoring it and going on with your story because it's too complex to weave it in. But instead in this, especially because it's um, these, you know, high powered DC folks who you can't show them without their iPhones and Blackberries constantly on them. Instead that gets woven into the plot and actually becomes part of, you can have several things going on at once. Frank can be at home having a conversation with Claire about one of the things that's happening in one thread of the show while he's texting with, Doug Stamper, his aide, mm-hmm. about another thread that's running through the show, and those yeah. things can run simultaneously, and you see the text on the screen, which is really interesting. So, yeah, it's just been a very, it's been a fascinating show, and they've done a lot of really neat things. They've added Molly Parker as a character, mm-hmm. um, so Canadian content. She's an yeah. awesome Canadian actress. <laughs> if people watched Twitch Twitch City back in the day, which <laughs> I used to love in high school, she was on that, and she's now been added as this sort of almost frank jr she's just as ruthless as him but has Mm. less experience and she's also um a military veteran who's now in congress which is kind of making that part of the story really interesting but uh but yeah i'm not done yet but i would highly recommend what i've seen so far (laughs) and uh really just as a different experience of television and i don't know one of the things that willimon was talking about in that article too was that netflix and systems like it get almost too much of the credit 
Mm-hmm. Like he was pointing out that that kind of serialized storytelling has been going on for the last decade, decade and a half. I mean, I always like to point to Lost as being sort yeah. of the thing that changed. I mean, it's the thing that was the first mainstream show to have the kind of online content that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And also to be super serialized so that you could binge watch it on DVD. And it would yeah. almost make more sense and be more intense to you that way. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so he was, yeah, he was acknowledging that too, that The Sopranos, Six Feet Under, Lost, you know, there are all kinds of shows that had done it beforehand. It's just that now it's being taken much better advantage of because mm-hmm. of the technology. Yeah. yeah. That's really interesting. I always love talking about changing television yeah that's great yeah i <laughs> i was just having a debate with someone today because she was talking about you know television catering to the lowest common denominator and i suppose traditional television maybe still does but there are yeah. so many other options now that some of the good stuff is starting to float to the top because yeah. that's what viewers want to actually spend their time on yeah it's it's getting i think i i mean I'm, i've never been a big reality tv watcher mm-hmm. or a watcher of programs that do appeal to that sort of kind of common viewer aesthetic but um yeah it'd be interesting to see how how things change when when the cable companies really don't have control anymore because i mean so many people are getting rid of their cable that i'll be interested yeah. to see what happens in 10 years yeah. basically well and the the hardware involved is interesting too i was just listening to an episode of spark um the technology show on cbc and they were talking about smart devices mm-hmm. <laughs> and how those devices are really not always all that smart mm-hmm. and um this whole you know smart tv smart fridge smart thermostat sort of model that's coming out and the problem with it being that those devices don't get upgraded very often or yeah. it's expensive or time consuming or complicated to upgrade the software that comes with them. And mm-hmm. so you end up not really being able to take advantage of the apps or of the internet connectivity or whatever, not to mention all the security concerns of, you know, hooking your fridge up to your Twitter or whatever. Yeah. Right. But uh, what he was saying was instead, what's this, the smarter move is, is to buy these little peripherals like mm-hmm. the Apple TV box or whatever. Yeah. Right. And those are much easier to replace than like a $1,500 TV, but they still mm-hmm. give you the same choices yeah. in terms of how and when and where to consume that content. So I don't know. It's a really interesting time that we're <laughs> living in because the, the, our ability to manage and choose wisely around all of this technology hasn't caught up to the speed at which we're just making this technology <laughs> to the point where there are these layers upon layers of like there are now services um, there are whole firms dedicated to coming into your home and making all of your different smart devices talk to each other and like oh, yeah. creating one central sort of universal remote for them all for mm-hmm. you so there are now technologies to manage our technologies <laughs> and there's only so far that can go but, the singularity so. is on the way oh god is what's is what's happening here emily said to me the other day that there's now a computer that has solved a mathematical proof that no one has ever been able to solve, but there's no way for humans to check its math. <laughs> well, I, for one, welcome our robot overlords. Um, Did I say overlords? <laughs> I meant protectors. Oh, that's the one. <laughs> <laughs> so we haven't done a where do we put this in a while. Where do we put this? But we have kind of an appropriate topic for it today. Yeah. So on where do we put this? We're talking about where do we put social media? Mm-hmm. In um, the context of the library. Yeah. So what what libraries use social media for in, in our experience? 
Um, yeah, so, we don't we don't purport to be you know social media experts or even library social media experts, <laughs> but um, but as entry level library employees, mm-hmm. <laughs> I think we've probably both experienced what many of you have probably experienced, which is. Oh, can you put this up on the Twitter feed? Yeah. Oh, somebody needs to take responsibility for the Facebook page. Yeah. Oh, you're, you know, young and in library school. Which one of these blogging services do you think we should use to raise awareness about the library? <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. And I, and I think that's kind of the case in a lot of other places, too. You know, there's this social media as a big buzzword, as a place for free advertising and a place to uh, connect with the products and services that are important to you. So, mm-hmm. um I always think that the library is kind of an interesting place to look at the context of social media because um, we're not really a business, nor are we really a government organization. No. Um, so how do we like how do we navigate that kind of persona that we're putting out on our social media? Yeah, because neither are we individuals, right? And yeah. and those organizations, those nonprofits and libraries, especially that have social media policies that have the amazing resource of someone to write a social media policy for them who needs <laughs> you know that needs both time and expertise and not everyone has it but often that is focused on making sure to appeal to a broad segment of people making sure not to let personal biases get in there and it's it's an odd balance to be not quite a person and not quite a business either because really mm-hmm. most of the resources that are out there to guide you into how to how to use social media are focused on either doing it for profit mm-hmm. or doing it as an individual often also for profit <laughs> <laughs> and that's not really step what we're one, about social media step two question mark step three profit honestly i think you just encapsulated like 98 percent of the resources i found in the last couple of months <laughs> when i was researching <laughs> how to educate people about social media <laughs> perfect perfectly done <laughs> Uh, so you did a bit of research on this in like our first term, right? Way, way yeah, back? yeah. In our first term, I did a project that kind of profiled the social media use of several different uh, Canadian academic libraries. Hmm. And in this project, I looked at the way they were using Twitter. I looked at sort of their their last few kind of weeks of Twitter interactions, and I looked at a few of them that had Facebook pages. I looked at those Facebook pages. Um, I didn't really know what Tumblr was at that point, so... Uh, I don't you think know. Tumblr knew what Tumblr was at that point. I don't point. think Tumblr knew what Tumblr was. This was, what, <laughs> two years ago? So, um, so yeah, I kind of had a look at these uh, personae that, that these academic libraries were, were trying to create, and um, I got a really weird picture from some of them, and um, was able to kind of maybe suss out a little bit of the kinds of best practices that I found two years ago that people were using on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I found that was really creepy was when the library uh, pretended that it was a human. <laughs> you know, and it's so a it's, rookie move <laughs> a rookie on social move. media. So it's always this, I think with, uh, with Twitter especially, there's always this kind of weird... Um, uncanny valley element of the social media service because you you are a human person tweeting as the library. Mm-hmm. So you're kind of personifying the library in a way. Um, but at the same time, you know, people may not know that it is it is you, the human person behind the organization. Yeah, they ascribe these messages to the organization the same way they would with print advertising or 
emails that they get from the library or whatever right exactly yeah and yeah. so um you know some of the really great things that they were doing um when they're interacting with the students is if they would get tweeted at by students saying like the Wi-Fi is out on the fourth floor of the library and then they'd be able to respond to those kinds of things. Or, you know, uh, some of them were also using their Twitter feed as kind of a check out the new resources that have come in mm -hmm. and kind of pushing that information, which I thought was really good. Uh, where things got super creepy, though, <laughs> is there were a few libraries and I can't remember exactly which ones. That's where, probably for the best. <laughs> yeah. Where the library was following individuals, which is fine. I, I love it when organizations follow me. I think it's really cool. Um, but they were following individuals and responding to individuals' tweets, though the individuals' tweets were not directed at the library. Yeah. Yeah. For example. <laughs> for example. <laughs> there was a student who was saying, oh, you know, studying for finals, like, hashtag finals week hashtag kill me now or something like that and even though this tweet wasn't directed at the library like there wasn't an at mention or even a hashtag dealing with the library itself mm -hmm. the library tweeted back like good luck on your finals kevin and i'm yeah. like ah, yeah that's getting into like <laughs> hal territory there. yeah it's so it's it's you know you have to find a kind of strike this this creepy balance between um you know being mm -hmm. being an organization and only kind of reaching reaching uh, reaching back as opposed to like i mean like you can yeah, push information if it's actually i mean if that had actually mentioned library resources in some way then yeah. maybe it would have been appropriate to reach out to yeah. it but yeah it really is this balance between like developing a persona for your organization, mm -hmm. which some Twitter feeds do really well. I mean, I'm thinking of like the Waterstones. I want to say it's the Piccadilly location of Waterstones. But anyway, <laughs> yeah. one, one of the Waterstones bookstores in the UK has yep. a great Twitter feed where yeah, it is sort of a personification of the library. Yeah. And there are a few other ones I can think of that do that. Um, Kingsgate Mall, the shitty mall <laughs> up the road, has a great one oh, that isn't actually amazing. run by Kingsgate Mall in yeah. any way, shape, or form. But I digress. Uh, but it's a balance between you know developing that persona and then also, especially in the case of libraries, following both the mission and maybe the restrictive public face policies of mm -hmm. your organization and not doing anything inappropriate, quote unquote, right? Yeah. Um, and that's a tough balance to strike. And it's also tough when you're dealing with the some some of the institutions of libraries, of course, are so enormous. Like UBC Library is gigantic. Via yeah. Vancouver Public is gigantic. There are so many branches. And many times, you know, the library will split up its Twitter feeds into, you know, a billion different Twitter feeds. And where do we try to negotiate these mm -hmm. kinds of personae when you have 18 Twitter feeds. Is, do you have to have like an underlying social media strategy that unites all yeah. of these accounts? And or? a strategy that really is user focused. And in yeah. libraries, we're really good at being user focused most of the time. But mm -hmm. I think sometimes the the buzzwordiness or the trendingness or whatever of social media makes libraries want to hop on board mm -hmm. to seem with it, which is a good goal, <laughs> but without thinking through. I just, I can't help but look and think of this, the picture of Steve Buscemi, like dressed up as a kid and he comes and he's like, hello, fellow children. He's holding a skateboard. <laughs> yeah. 
Before or after he went undercover as a female social studies teacher? Uh, I think that was after. <laughs> anyway. Um, yeah, and I think the case with the UBC library, because right now they're reassessing all of these, you know, dormant Twitter accounts, is that every branch got so excited about being able to get their message out there on Twitter mm-hmm. that they sort of forgot that the end user was going to be a little lost in terms of who to follow and where to get certain updates and that yeah. kind of stuff. And in some cases... Um, say like with the research commons where I work, it makes sense for that branch or that part of the library to have its own Twitter feed because it has very specific users, in our case, grad students Mm -hmm. that they're targeting. But in a lot of ways, a lot of stuff that's coming out of the individual libraries from a user perspective could just come out of the central library Twitter, I think. Yeah. And it's one of those questions, well, who controls the central library Twitter? Yeah. (laughs) Who does? Well, and who controls it and also who decides what gets to be on it right yeah like with vpl i've um and been involved in some conversations about their social media strategies and part of what they've been doing over the past year after reorganizing some of their departments at the big central library is how do they decide who has access to the accounts and mm-hmm. then how do they decide when you're a library worker who doesn't have that access and you have something to say via those accounts who do you send it to? Yeah. How much lead time do you have to give them? How fast can they respond? Because social media is sort of an on-the-moment kind of thing, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah and it's it's such a funny thing. <laughs> well, and it's also off the side of the desk, right? Yeah. Like, that's the other problem is that often this stuff is being done by people who are inexperienced or who don't have access to the resources and time and knowledge about it that they need to really figure out what the library should do with it. Right? Exactly. Hmm. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, there's other ways that libraries get involved with, with social media, too. Um, especially, I would say, in the in the public library. I think academic and special libraries already have certain expectations of their users to be, um, to be well-versed mm-hmm. in social media. Especially, you know, incoming um, millennials and, you know, incoming staff to be all... Yeah, right or wrong, on there the are those assumptions <laughs> that if you're under 35... You know you what's know up. exactly what you're doing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and you know all of them, too. So mm-hmm. There are so many. Oh um, gosh, but I know yeah. you've been involved in kind of educating the public more on on social media. Let's. Uh, yeah, like I recently had the opportunity to exactly that, to consider social media from a public library user perspective um, rather than just from a library perspective. And that came about because the department that I work in at the Vancouver Public Library is trying to add some some services to the learning side of what they provide for their patrons and so Mm -hmm. they have some really great courses on like computer basics you know for people who don't know how to use a mouse and the fact that the public library is still a safe space you can go to in 2014 if you don't know how to use a mouse but want to know is great it's one of the Mm -hmm. great things about public libraries and they've got some basic like internet basics courses about just email and browsing the internet and that kind of stuff And then their suite of services kind of hops to specific courses on things like Facebook, LinkedIn, WordPress, um, Twitter, right? Mm -hmm. And there was there's kind of this piece missing in between. And so when I was hired, I was asked to look into creating a course to fill that gap. And I've just finished doing that and presenting it to some of my colleagues. And it went over really well. It was great. They had a lot of great feedback and uh, that kind of thing. And yeah, that was a really interesting experience. And with the plethora of social media services and things that are out there right now, which mm-hmm. ones did you choose to touch on as kind of the most important, or how did you decide 
to, to touch on certain ones because you've got a limited amount of time, obviously. Absolutely, yeah. And we don't want it to just be an hour or an hour and a half of the library employee speaking at the patrons, right? That's yeah. not what this is about. It's really about having a safe space to discuss and learn about and express concerns about some of these services. Mm -hmm. So um, part of how I decided was just doing some research, looking at numbers, looking at news reports, that kind of thing. Obviously, some of them were no-brainers. Whatever you want to say about Facebook, it's still one of the big players, so it needs to be in there. And same with Twitter and LinkedIn, uh, WordPress and Tumblr, that kind of thing. But also part of what I did was um, poll our colleagues at our library school mm -hmm. to kind of ask from their perspective as, you know, burgeoning information professionals, what do they think people need to be aware of? And I got some interesting responses from that. That's why I included things like Reddit and Instagram, which maybe I'm not as familiar with, but mm -hmm. obviously are important things for people to be aware of if they want to learn more about social media. Um, and we kind of tried to break up the content thematically in some way. So I ended up with a couple of sets of kind of simple Venn diagrams with, you know, three areas each. And one of them looks at the connecting and sharing aspects of some of these bits of social media. So connecting with people over, you know, through communities of interest. So you don't know them personally, but they're interested in the same things as you. So that would include things like Pinterest, Goodreads, of course, for library users. Uh, Tumblr is in there. Uh, things like Reddit, of course. And then also looking at the more sort of collaborative sharing and content creation aspects mm -hmm. of social media. So things like Flickr, YouTube, Instagram, where you're actually sharing your own content that you've built or consuming the content that other everyday users have built. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the second set of diagrams deals more with the networking aspects. So personal and professional networking with either your family via Facebook or your friends via Twitter or your work colleagues via both of those and then also LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. So we kind of felt those were important to pull out and look at just on their own, those aspects. Um, and part of what we did as well was make sure that we built in some criticism or at least mm. some space to discuss criticisms. Mm -hmm. Because the library is a neutral party in this, right? right. Uh, especially when it comes to education. If you want to know more about this, we want to empower you to learn more about it and maybe to use it for your own purposes. Mm -hmm. But we're not going to stand up there and tell you you have to. <laughs> yeah. Or that it is, you know, absolutely in your number one benefit to take advantage of these services. Yeah. In yeah. fact, depending on your lifestyle or your personal identity or whatever, it might be something that you don't want to use. Mm -hmm. And so we've built in a couple of things and I'm still kind of locking in the content with um, my immediate supervisor just because we might be showing here's another peril of library work we might be um, <laughs> showing the content of this out on the library floor they have okay. these great machines at VPL called iRovers which are basically like little portable projector screens and you can oh, wheel nice. them into a corner of the library and just have an impromptu kind of seminar or workshop there oh cool and they use it a lot for like the job hunting uh, workshops they'll mm -hmm. wheel it into the business section where all the books and resources are and right. do it there but I've added a couple of video clips, one of which uh, includes Louis C.K., who, as we know, likes to use <laughs> some salty language, <laughs> talking about the reasons why these things might not actually be the best things to use. Mm -hmm. um, so I've got a clip of Louis C.K. discussing why he hates Twitter mm -hmm. <laughs> on Conan and uh, a clip of and I'll throw the link in the show notes because I can't remember what they're called, but they're these. Muppet looking puppets mm -hmm. that are used to do various kind of comedy videos. And this one is the two of them, the two of these puppets going through the top 10 reasons why they hate Facebook. And it's actually really entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> um, there was a lot of laughter in the room when I showed it to the LAs and the librarians mm -hmm. last week. So, um, 
we want to make sure we include some content like that. And my manager is all for it, but I don't think either of us had really thought until it got brought up in that practice session, how is this going to work with showing these videos out in the library? So yeah, there might be some adjustments to make there. But uh, but at any rate, we want to make sure that we have some some space for maybe this isn't right for you and that's okay. You yeah. don't have to run to catch up with everything. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I think that that's a that's a message that can be taken by a lot of a lot of not just businesses on Twitter, but libraries, too. I mean. I think mm-hmm. that there are some libraries that are doing great, great things with their um, with their social media. But I think it's funny that sometimes social media can be such a regional thing. And mm-hmm. um, this isn't a social media example, but this is a, a like an online um, uh, uh, what are they classifieds example. Oh, so okay. here in Vancouver, if you're looking for an apartment, what do you use? Hmm. You use Craigslist. Craigslist. Yeah. In uh, where I did my master's degree in Kingston, Ontario, um, my first master's degree, I should say, <laughs> um, nobody, hardly anybody uses Craigslist. Everybody there uses Kijiji, Kijiji yeah. which is this weird Canadian site. Um, so, you know, it's, I think that it can sometimes be a little bit regional. Yeah, yeah. And actually, we're kind of finding that with, um, I just started a Tumblr for the research comments. Mm-hmm. Uh, did I mention this earlier? I don't know. I'll go into it anyway. Um, and we don't have very many followers yet. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I think it's a great platform for reaching out to grad students, but it's not catching on, I think, in part because Tumblr is a non-regional community. Mm-hmm. Like something like Twitter, especially as a librarian or other professional, you're often connecting with people because you're at a conference with them and you're all using the same hashtag or whatever, right? So there's some regional content to that. Or you're live tweeting an event that you're at and other people that are at it or in your region are following you, right? Mm -hmm. But with Tumblr, it's almost this like pure community of interest situation. Yeah. And so a lot of the folks who might find the content interesting that I'm posting on the Research Commons Tumblr don't actually have any use for the research common services because they're not UBC grad students. Yeah. So that's been an interesting balance to strike. And it might be that we should just focus on Twitter for that reason. And I can see maybe some Tumblr being really great for some libraries, especially if they're um, like larger libraries that do have some international interest. I'm thinking of like, I don't, I don't know if the Bodleian has a Tumblr, but like, Probably. you know, or like, you know, like New York public library, like it's a yeah. big name and it's an innovative name and, and people in and out of the industry know that the, the New York public library is pretty freaking cool yeah and it's gonna like be that. followed by libraries and librarians and people from all over the world for yeah. sure yeah and and even something like having a general giant ubc library tumblr might mm-hmm. be interesting but something as specific as the research commons yeah yeah and i think what it has been useful for and this isn't necessarily reflected in the numbers but is that it's a dynamic space in which to make longer posts or updates than something like Twitter provides yeah. the space for or that people are going to focus on on Facebook. They're not going to read them, you know. And it means that we don't have to constantly be messing with the content on our website. Right? I was going to say, because does, does so, the research come and have a blog um, other than Tumblr? We have a website, but we don't have a blog. There's yeah. no blog attached to the website. And okay. so part of what Tumblr has been is a place to put a longer post with images and information about events or services and then we can tweet the link to it right and so people might be following us on twitter but they're still getting connected to that content that the platform of tumblr provides Mm -hmm. so that's an interesting thing too i mean in libraries we're so obsessed with assessment for very Mm -hmm. good reasons and part of what we always have to do is 
we sometimes have to wrangle really qualitative assessment data (laughs) into something that we can argue means something. And that might be the case with this situation. I'm gearing up to give an update to my staff about this on Monday. So that's part of why I'm advocating so hard here. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I think it's an interesting thing to think about that often these tools are useful, even if they're not reflected in the numbers, it might still be worth spending some resources on them. Yeah, for sure. Well, if you have a unique approach to social media or your library does, or you have some ideas um, that libraries can use to kind of, uh, you know, upgrade that social media mm-hmm. part of their or service. Or if you know of any examples of really awesome library social media presences. Or if you have some examples of really terrible yeah, social those are media fun presences. Too. <laughs> Not that there are any of those. No, there totally no, are. No, there many, totally are. Many of those. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, do let us know. Get in touch with us. And uh, we would love to see what you have to say about uh, libraries and social media. So that's us for this week. Yeah, I guess that's that's all we got for you. Um, social media updates, as per usual. Mm-hmm. Um, Twitter, we're we're inching ever closer. We only need nine more followers yeah, until we hit that, that wonderful one hundred follower mark. Uh, so if you haven't followed us on Twitter already, we are at SS Librarianship, and we promise we are going to step up our Twitter game. Yeah, yeah. We do not want to be one of those Twitters that's just, you know, nothing, nothing, nothing. New hey episode. Guys, come listen to the new episode. We promise yeah. that we're we're making a concerted effort to make it a little more interesting for y'all. <laughs> yeah, and um we have been getting a few more stats on our website that we've been trying to figure out. And if the stats are to be believed, then it looks like we actually have more subscribers than um than we had originally thought. Mm-hmm. So looks like we're at about five hundred a month pretty fantastic which is which is pretty awesome in the month of february we've had about 500 people ping off of our rss feed um which big big thank you to all of you who've been listening and telling your colleagues and friends about the show yeah reblogging links to it we really appreciate it it's all very exciting Mm -hmm. so um we're really looking forward to seeing that number climb up a little bit more in the next couple of weeks um and we wanted to run something by you guys now people who listen to the ss librarianship are we gonna call you shippers oh no no is that weird it's weird it's weird okay we'll come up with something yeah. better we, maybe we, we should have help. a twitter we all have a twitter contest yeah. about that yeah we'll do yeah. something so follow us on twitter and a tweet to us what our fans should be called and uh we'll we'll let you know the results of that hmm. uh so we also have a uh another bit of exciting news that you may have seen in the last couple of days which is we have updated our website. We've got yeah. a brand new look to the site. Um, we're really happy with it. Yeah. Part of why it's so fantastic <laughs> is that Allie's wonderful friend Bronwyn, who yeah. is a absolutely marvelously talented artist, uh, painted us this amazing painting of the SS librarianship. Yeah, we uh, we commissioned her a little while ago to do some kind of art for us, and she did this really amazing painting <laughs> that's super fantastic and it's now serving as the background of uh, the SS librarianship website so yeah. please do go to even if you listen to us just on uh, on your your phones you don't usually check it out uh, from the website just go just go have a look mm-hmm. have yeah. a boo have a peek what are you talking about they're there every week to get all those <laughs> extra helpful links that we put in I'm sure they are <laughs> and while you're there for the next week until March the 1st, um, if you're listening to us from the future, <laughs> I'm very sorry. But um, until March the 1st, we are actually having a poll. So we are going to start doing some SS librarianship 
buttons. Mm-hmm. So if you are interested in buttons, um, we are having a, a poll on the website to see what design we like best. Yeah, we're, we're pretty fond of all the designs, the one by Brownman and the two by Allie, <laughs> and our original photograph of the glasses and the dice in the book. But uh, we want to know what you think and what you would be interested in winning or buying or however we're going to uh, deal with distribution <laughs> of said swag. But we're hoping that might be a stepping stone to uh, some more awesome things to come. Speaking of which, uh, shout out to Melanie at Melagy on Twitter uh, who has just jetted off at about 6am this morning as we record here um, on the Joko cruise for this year which looks fantastically fun. I almost went with her but I just <laughs> couldn't muster up the cash. Um, and she is being kind enough to, she's taken some SS librarianship info with her and she's going to spread that around to the nerds and famous nerds on the boat. (laughs) Uh, So uh, if if you've gotten to us that way, welcome. mm -hmm. And I hope you had a great time on the cruise. And then finally, in kind of connectivity news, the British Columbia Libraries Association conference is coming up in almost exactly a month, month and a week, something like that. Something like that. And we would love to get together for like an informal meetup with folks who've been listening to and enjoying the show, um, both to just pal around with you and show our appreciation, (laughs) but also to maybe talk about future guests for the show, future topics for the show, Mm -hmm. uh, more ways that we can be more relevant to the library community locally and at large. So watch for more info about that and about where we might end up meeting up somewhere near where the conference is going to be, I would imagine. Yeah, probably somewhere downtown. Uh, And with that, all that's left is to thank Jonathan Colton for the use of our theme song, Glasses, off the album Artificial Heart, which in just a couple of days, people are going to be grooving to in the middle of the ocean. I'm so jealous. (laughs) And so I guess the very last thing we always say is just to everyone have a have a safe rest of the winter. It is snowing here in Vancouver, which is really sad and horrible. Um, which means awesome which in Alley speak, right? Sad and horrible. And I'm so sorry to those who live on the east who've been dealing with this for you know months and months at this point. They're fine. I talked to them this morning. It's not even snowing there. Yeah, whatever. Uh, (laughs) and as to all of our listeners as it is every week we will catch you on the proverbial flip side